Welcome to Nudge Talk, a behavioural science podcast curated by Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behaviour. our first podcast under our new name, Nudge Talk Radio. And we wanted to have a great start by sharing an exciting interview between our very own Sam Tatum, Global Head of Behavioral Science Practice, and Rory Sutherland, our co-founder. They discuss Sam's new book, Evolutionary Ideas, Unlocking Ancient Innovation to Solve Tomorrow's Challenges. Sam has been bringing this thinking to the team for years and was so excited that it's now being shared with the world. So sit back, grab a coffee and enjoy a full hour of the brilliant Sam Tatum and Rory Sutherland. Well, Rory, it's so wonderful to see you with the book in your hands. Oh, it's a pleasure to have it. It's, uh, there's no substitute for a physical version either, <laughs> is there? In a digital age, uh, yes. you know, Kindle versions are all very well, but they don't really do the job. And no one ever, no one ever writes you and emails you and asks for the signed version of your Kindle book either. <laughs> And it's wonderful to have a, an opportunity to sort of speak with you about a book that you've obviously been a, a big inspiration for, and, and you and I have talked about this for, 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 for many years, so it's wonderful to, to discuss it as a, as a polished product. It's also, it's also fantastic because I think it makes this evolutionary point very soundly that uh, in particular, of course, you know, uh, there's the role of what we always called it in a group uh, we, we we always call it. Um, I've briefly forgotten the name. Um, uh, uh, lateral category analysis. Yes, yeah. which is that the same problem has been solved somewhere else. Yes, um, and actually, there's a very interesting piece by Roger L. Martin in his Medium blog where he makes the point that he says that uh, one thing that annoyed him about conventional consulting was they were only interested in examples from their own industry. Yeah. And that as soon as you used a parallel from another industry and you used it kind of through the power of metaphor, he said a lot of these consulting people would get very angry as if it were obviously, in a, you know, n- non-applicable. And actually that business of spotting recurring patterns where, and of course, that's a fa- fascinating evolutionary discipline yes. where different species have either solved the same problem in different ways or indeed have arrived at the same solution through completely different paths. Yeah, yeah, and I remember even as a um, as a sort of a junior planner doing creative reviews. We used to do a lot of work with Castrol Motor Oil in in Sydney, and I remember that we'd every year we'd do a, a creative review of the of the lubricant industry, and we'd never stop to think about looking at Gatorade or Powerade. No, no. Um, but, but, but if you think of them from a psychological perspective, they're fundamentally the same the same product. I mean, you're asking someone, you're, you're really looking for someone to trust that this expensive liquid is working behind closed doors. So if you can, if you can see how Gatorade and, and Powerade are looking to sort of sell electrolytes, then maybe we can borrow from them to, to, to push Magnatech. And I think it's something, it's certainly something that, uh, that, that we have in the past been um, been subject to our, ourselves and, and looking to a, to a lateral category or looking to a, what, what would be a, a similarly convergent solution in the wild is really helpful. It's interesting too because I think the other thing that you could criticise ad agencies for is although they preach a very good game on brands, they, they're disproportionately eager, probably for financial reasons, when a client comes and says, we're going to launch a new brand because they smell money. Whereas, of course, the extension of an existing brand, in other words, building on what cognitive wealth is already there. You know, the, the, what is fascinating about evolution is it doesn't really have a reverse gear. It works yeah. on, you know, it, it effectively works on what already exists. And I think there's that, I think there is that huge tendency towards reinvention of things. Yes. I, I used to find, I used to get slightly irritated in the early days of, uh, of the dot com boom, where it was almost as if someone had come up with a new design for an aircraft lavatory. And it wasn't enough to go to Boeing or Airbus and say, this is a better lavatory. They felt they had to launch their own airliner and yeah, then effectively yeah, yeah. launch their own airline. 
to feature this lavatory. <laughs> and you kind of felt, well, you know, actually, to be honest, do you need to create all this stuff from new? Can't you work with what already exists? And I, I find that really, really interesting because I think there is a tendency for people to become massive neophytes. I think so it's very interesting. Very interesting talking to Roger L. Martin about um, his advice to Ford, which is <coughs> don't create this new electric car brand because you're now asking someone to buy an unfamiliar type of car with an unfamiliar name. Instead, he said, look, you've got about six really, really hot properties. And I think he reeled off Mustang, Bronco. I would have said Thunderbird, but he didn't agree. Mustang, Bronco, Transit, probably Focus, and F-150. And his advice, which clearly Ford took, they may have done it anyway, mm -hmm. was build on what you've got. You know, yeah. you build on the familiarity you already have and electrify the F-150. You'll have, you know, 5 million truck owners and F-150 enthusiasts wanting the electric version. Whereas if you'd, you know, if you'd done that whole thing of creating something from scratch, I get the fact that Elon probably had to do it. Someone had to do that. And that's that, the that, thing. Yeah. And Elon doing it creates a new ecosystem for, for mm. others to thrive within it. You know, and that's the interesting thing. And, and in the book, we sort of talk about this balance between revolutionary innovation and evolutionary innovation. And, and, mm. and the book's about the sort of the power of evolutionary thinking. So sort of naturally we take a bit of a priority there but um but there are there are obviously sort of moonshots and and what what some studies will find sort of the one percent of innovations that are truly radical like the teslas like the work that elon's elon's doing but it's a bit like sort of an impact a major impact event hitting the planet i mean it does it does happen it doesn't happen that frequently but when it does happen it creates new ecosystems for others to to, to thrive and what and is interesting, what is interesting is that he had to, in the very beginning, which is now no longer necessary, he had to create his own charging network. Yeah. So he had to sort of terraform America and Europe uh, to make it appropriate for long journeys, because yes. unless you had high speed charging, you know, available every hundred miles or so, the, the car was effectively a non-starter. Yeah. And, that was and an I, extraordinary case, yeah. And I think the challenge you, you you raise around sort of novelty is a is a big one. And in in sort of, sort of flag in the book, sort of two two myths of innovation. One is that sort of big problems need big solutions, and and you and I sort of have worked closely in the in the field of behavioural science to know that sort of the small and the trivial can have big impacts. But the the second being that new problems need need new solutions, and it could just be a new problem. For us, I mean, so the, the the new challenge for Ford might be launching in into 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 electric vehicles, but it's a problem that other brands have already ventured into. Um, so rather than thinking that we need to redesign from scratch, actually we can borrow from the equity that exists or borrow from the the solutions that exist. So I think this is this is a, a big argument for for borrowing and adaptation rather than a create a, a creationist mindset. Well, I, I always remember, I think it's true, particularly in this sort of psychological area, where you have those products that you you mentioned Google Glass as having a last mile problem, Yeah, which is everything about it was clever, except that psychological barrier to adoption, which That's is, right. it was just too weird. Yes. And arguably, because they were, <laughs> they probably made the mistake in that they handed them out to the developer community, okay, who are probably, you know, all fine and noble, hardworking people with an IQ above 140, but it's probably fair to say they're not the coolest people on the planet. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they, you know, actually handing handing them out to foot premiership footballers would have been a better move, yes. to be absolutely yeah. honest. Than, than hand, but but that's a that's a wonderful example of a kind of last mile problem where you can get everything else right. But if there's some element of psychological discomfort. Yeah. involved in the in, in the thing. I always laugh about the martini as a drink, which is an absolutely hardcore drink served in a glass where, to be absolutely honest, unless you're auditioning for the next James Bond, you don't really feel very comfortable as a bloke holding a martini glass. Okay, it feels fundamentally ridiculous. Yes, yes. Now, the drink's pretty much neat spirit. You know, it's a hardcore drink. Okay, right. it's got an olive in it, I guess. But, I mean, it is... It is kind of strange when you think about it that you have yes. these strange sort of and Google Glass was a bit like that. Everything about it was uh, 
was spot on. It, and of course, there's that wonderful, the wonderful phrase. I think you might mention it in the book actually. Uh, it's Mayer, which is Raymond Lurie's term for innovation, which is maximally advanced yet acceptable. Yes. I think I think that came from him building an electric fan, which was so quiet, people assumed it was completely ineffectual. And that think, some part of the psychological cooling effect of a fan is that it makes a noise, or there's a sound of rushing air, and you can have exactly the same velocity of air, but without the noise. And notionally, in like terms of evaporation, thing. it's working. But but you know, it's rather like a digital camera that doesn't go click. There's no reason yes, for the yes, damn yes. thing to go click. But if it doesn't go click, you assume something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. And and both of those, with the Martini and, and Google, there's sort of just this irk of discomfort. There's something that's not quite right at the very end. I mean, the example of that where it can be quite arbitrary is something that's actually inherited, which is that when you order something online, you get an email confirmation. Okay? Yes. Now, the screen's already said, thank you for your order. Okay. You kind of know you've ordered it. But effectively, if you don't get a kind of email confirmation, you assume the purchase has gone wrong. Yes. You know, you don't go, oh, I'm sure it's fine. You get no, no, no. And that really comes from, I suppose, the early days of the internet. It's, it's far less necessary now. You could send a confirmation by WhatsApp or whatever. But it's just one of those things where once the convention is established, the expectation is set, and to some extent you've got to play to it. And, and finding the way in which we can scratch that itch in, in a new channel or if, if it's an email, that doesn't mean we need to forget the courtesy that we would normally provide in a written letter or spoken communications just because we chase. So, so it's about sort of making sure we don't, we don't leave behind what people are expecting to have from us just as we, as we progress us, as we progress ourselves. Um, what, and, what, and, you can, you can throw out the baby with the bathwater in some yeah, way. Yeah. 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 yeah interesting. And, and I think it's really important to know then what's the, what's the challenge that we're up against. Are we up against, social discomfort are we up against a lack of trust is it just about a sort of a lack of action is it around the enjoyment of the time that's spent um and i think i, th- I think if we understand a bit like the, the the castrol gatorade analogy like if we understand actually this is about this is about trust and efficacy um then we can we can borrow from other solutions that help to reinforce trust and efficacy and if we understand that Google Glass is a social problem, not a techno- technological problem, <laughs> then maybe using the right social influences um, or, 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 or advising people to use it in the right sort of social environments help us to bridge that gap a little bit earlier. Because I think they found recently that Google Glass is really effective in sort of more focused production roles where it has a really – it is for X. So no one can think that you're sort of taking imaginary – pictures of someone or you're going to get captured as in your sort of your next visit to the loo you can sort of start to say this is this is the role also in an age of flexible working and kind of video conferencing um arguably it had a whole new, new role to be actually rediscovered yeah yeah you know so that you know first of all you know on a video conference it would be quite useful if you had you know a, effectively a second screen in your eye yes. where ancillary information could be fed to you Yes, um, and uh, and I I also think, by the way, they made the mistake they quit on it too early, which is a really interesting thing, which is probably true of of evolutionary things, which is that uh, future that that sigmoid curve where things start slow, yeah, and that that goes from everything from kind of the anti slavery movement to acceptance of same sex marriage to stigmatization of drink driving, okay, generally these things because of those twin forces of habit and social copying, generally they all start off as niche movements and they're quite slow. And then they hit a kind of tipping point or critical yeah. mass where suddenly you have enough volume there or not, you know, you reach escape velocity. And then the, and it, it does occur to me that I, th- I, wor- I worry sometimes about how many, I mean, humans were spectacularly unsuccessful for it's fair to say, I think, I think at the peak of the last ice age, I think humans got down to about 8,000 breeding pairs on the planet. So it was kind of an endangered, humans were an endangered species for a period. Now, I've got a friend at the University of Bath whose wife does research on this. And her belief, quite interesting, her belief is that the humans who survived were the ones with dogs. Yeah. <laughs> that the humans who domesticated dogs effectively made it through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because human 
human on its own, dog on its own, have, you know, independent strengths. Dogs rather more than humans, I might argue. But human plus dog is a pretty formidable combination. Yes. And um, so, I mean, that, that's another lesson, by the way, which is, you know, I've, I've been doing quite a bit of Mark Ritson watching and his great thing about brand partnerships, that actually uh, there's always a lot of nonsense spoken about brand partnerships, but I've always thought you actually end up with the best of both. Yes. And that it, there's right. this nonsensical phrase, oh, no, the brand partnerships, they dilute your brand. And I always said that's a bit like saying that having friends dilutes your personality. You know, it just doesn't. It doesn't work like that. That's not how the equation works. And um, but no, borrowing that the right equity. Borrow, borrowing the right equity. Uh, Ritson's a big fan. Um, he mm -hmm. always uh, mm -hmm. uh, he always talks about this that we we have this sort of stupid idea that I think brand partnerships don't happen because I think they're administratively complex and. Uh, I think there's a lot of ego take, in there too. Uh, there's a lot of ego, and they take time to negotiate. Yes, but I yeah. mean things here like KFC flavored Walkers crisps. I think yes. it's fantastic combination. Yes, yes, yeah. And it's you make both of you more famous. Yeah, and and finding those opportunities to create that tipping point, as you as you mm. as you say. No, I think that's interesting because we do have to worry about that, which is if people assume that um, uh, innovation and progress is kind of linear. And they will see the early years of something unsuccessful, not growing very fast. I mean, there are exceptions to that, I guess. I mean, Starbucks grew weirdly fast, didn't it? Um, mobile phones. Mobile phones, however, were that we always forget this. We see them as a very, very fast technology. But they existed in the 1970s and 80s. And my father had a very flash business partner who had a kind of mobile phone in his car uh, in the late 70s, I think. I mean, it was kind of, you had to talk to someone and ask to be put through to a number, but it worked. And, um, uh, and of course, mobile phones then went through that period in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when they were kind of objects of ridicule. And it's, I think it's very, very dangerous to see the first, uh, you know, to, to, to judge the success of something by its early Academy. stage adoption. Yeah. And as you say, there are, there are, there are examples like, like Starbucks, there are any examples like Nespresso that change categories or I mean, create categories. And again, it goes back to the sort of the Teslas. This is the, the, the impact event that, that opens up new markets. Um, and it's about how can, we, how can we find those breakthrough innovation opportunities more readily? And in between those impact events, how can we, how can we continue to accelerate what we're, what we're doing by not assuming that we need to create an entirely new market, actually assuming that the market is there and the solution is there? And we just need to look. We just need to look to the side. I mean, the um, invention, the, the 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 invention, the idea which um, didn't really exist before, and which it always amazes me how few people have nicked it, is Amazon Prime, mm. which is the idea that okay, you make a commitment as a intending to be regular customer, and in return for your pledge of allegiance, as it were, through your annual payment. We will give you recurring benefits every time you use us yes. to a point where, you, you know, if you use us enough, you end up winning. Yes. Okay? Yes. And a Tesco have done it in the UK. There's a thing called Club Card Plus, I think it is, Rewards uh, is it Club Card Plus, where you pay annually and you get preferential treatment. But it's it's weird to me. I, I guess easy – well, actually, I kind, of, I kind of suggested it to EasyJet. So they have a thing called EasyJet Plus where – it, what's good is that if you're a very frequent user of EasyJet, you know, someone who flies once a year doesn't really mind paying, you know, 30 quid to check in their mm -hmm. luggage or, or 15 quid to sit up front. But someone who flies 10 times a year gets a bit pissed off. Makes a difference. And so that business of bundling things together, and I've actually argued that it ought to apply to things like car parking, that locals should be able to effectively buy into their local car parks and say, look, if you're a tourist, you don't really care whether it's £7 or £5 to park because you're only doing it once. Whereas if you live there and you park 100 times a year, that's a big difference. I think certainly high frequency or, or, or high competition, it can be, mm. again, it's, a, it's a nice sort of, there's a few things happening there in, in the sunk cost as an individual. We're paying for something, so we have an invested interest, so we're likely to use it more frequently. Um, and then there's, there's, there's a payback for, 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 for loyalty. And again, if we look at, um, I, I found research in the book, in, even in the animal kingdom, some 
um, some examples of, of nest building um, as a as a as a longer term strategy to keep male birds invested in the relationship. You know, if, if you're that's a it. Well, you have the, the Australia. You're in Australia, so you have the bower bird, the which bower I think bird. is Australia. Which it I think is, is Australian, is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it has yeah. wonderful, wonderfully ornate. It collects anything, anything blue that it can find, which is typically hard in nature. Not so hard now when you've got some bits of plastic, but so it's doing its bit for the for the blue litter of Australia. But this sort of really ornate investment and and, and deep investment in building the nest um, builds a sense of sunk cost that it's probably not going to fly the coop as soon as the kids are born. So, so there are wonderful examples when we look at what would be considered like how do we boost loyalty without actually asking someone to pay well. With us not increasing the incentive necessarily, the counterintuitive solution is to get someone to pay for it up front. Um, the, the the coy example is if, if we go to sort of marriage, and this is a bit sort of a bit tongue in cheek, but there's truth in this. And there's sort of yeah. some degree of investment up front for for longer term mutual benefits together. Um, so maybe a, a, sort of an engagement ring is not too different from an Amazon Prime account. Um, in 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 embedding loyalty and investing up front and, and it's, it's and upfront expenses proof of long term <laughs> intention yeah. exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what so I find so exciting about this stuff is to think and 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 as as, as you mentioned at the beginning as a as a as a team what we found for certainly it's sort of the creative that comes before the creative where is the where is the least expected place that you might think to find an analogous solution. That we can bring to this category. I know in the past we've worked on sort of blue chip computer manufacturers, and we've looked at Pornhub to see how they're keeping people in a hot state of arousal to go through a, 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 a transaction. You know, it's, it's very and, and this is these are the fun things that we should be doing because they're sort of the extremes, right? And that's again where evolution is really interesting because of the specific environmental constraints force an adaptive response. Well, it's cracked, I suppose, the explore-exploit trade-off, doesn't it? Yes. Which is, it's got a mechanism that does two things. <coughs> it experiments, but it replicates its successes. Yes, yeah. And, and, and what, what tends to happen with a lot of mature businesses is they replicate the successes and try and do so more efficiently. Yeah. And in the process, end up actually eradicating some of the more complex things which made them effective and successful in the first place. And forgetting why we're doing it, right? And that's where I think there can be and this yeah. goes goes back to where we where we started looking at at the sort of the Castrol Gatorade analogy. Is one 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 example is to sell more motor lubricant or sell more electrolyte drink. The other is to reinforce trust in the product. And so if we can understand if we can sort of reframe the nature of the challenge that this is a this is a commitment problem, this is a loyalty problem, or this is around this is around actually triggering it. There's there's a heap of desire here. Um, people would love a couple of a, a couple of nips of gin, a little bit of uh, of olive brine. It's just the martini glass um, is 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 turning people yeah. away. I mean, what's what's the piece? Okay, so how do how do we then how do we then address that 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 last element and. Um, and and I think it's identical. Well, I, th- I think the answer. I think the answer to that is the mason jar, isn't it? You have those cocktail bars where every drink is served in a mason jar. Totally. Yep. So that's one anxiety removed because everybody yep. else has got a yes. drink in a mason jar. Okay, and so you're pretty happy. That's one worry you don't have because you're, you're, you're surrounded by people the, drinking out of mason totally. jars. It removes what the, the back yeah. out. You're, you're not. You're not sort of the mm-hmm. the odd the oddball. It's a. It's, it helps people to, to to decide what's in the in the in the inside rather than what it looks like. Um, but well, the other one is the other one is you have a picture on the menu of what the glass is, which is yes. another massive uh, anxiety. What is interesting here, I think, and of course we shouldn't be surprised by this at all. Because someone said something quite nice about my book, Alchemy, which applies, I think, even more to your book here. Okay. And I was I was quite taken with it, which is they said, most books start with a grandiose theory, right, and then cast around for examples. Okay. And they said, what this book does and what your book does is you start with apparently trivial things that are almost beneath your dignity to consider, like, you know, mm. the success of Red Bull or whatever it may be. Okay. And then you actually build from the bottom up. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that that's exactly what Darwin did. Uh, It's very strange that people think you start with a theory in a sense, because what Darwin did was go around observing things which were Mm. apparently trivial and ridiculous, like, you know, different finches having different beaks on adjacent islands in an archipelago, according to what the foliage was. And actually, by observing the trivial and the small, 
what you can actually infer from that in terms of replicable patterns is really pretty valuable. Whereas what most theories try and do is they try and do it the other way around. So they try and basically start with an elegant theory and then retrofit reality into it. Yes. And the trick is to start with reality and just go, look, this thing is successful and popular and it's patently, you know, it's patently replicating. Yes. What If we can find right. out what the magic formula is inside it, some part of its DNA, and place that somewhere else, and yeah. it might be in a completely unrelated commercial field, it might be in, you know, it might not even be in commerce, it might be in, as you said, in, you know, public policy or something like that. Yeah. Now you might be onto something. And, you know, because in a sense, you know, maths can go up or down. And I think social sciences can only go from the bottom to the top. I think, you know, I, I read a very good, very good piece today, which basically, and I suddenly realized this is a huge problem in the advertising industry, which is that because of payment by the hour, we recruit people for, uh, for a job title. Mm-hmm. And Roger Martin in this Medium piece said, you know, when I ran the Rotman School, we didn't do this. What we did is we recruited the best people and then we found jobs for them. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And he said when he was the dean, he said, you know, when they'd grown from sort of 25 faculty to 200, he said it got pretty time consuming because I had to spend at least an hour a year with 200 people and find out what they wanted. But he completely resisted things like sort of generalized incentive schemes where you were bonused according to where you published, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so that's an interesting question, which is that so much of stuff is ordered so that it looks neat when viewed from the top. When actually that's irrelevant. The question is, does it work at the bottom? Because if it works at the bottom, now you've actually got a proof got point, them. which, you know, you you might reasonably say this can probably work somewhere else. And I think there are two fronts. One is that, that a lot of the if, if we look at the, the language of the discipline of behavioral science, the sort of the codification of things, it's, it's been based on the observation of patterns. Um, so, it, so it is itself a, a pattern recognizing language. But for us, I think creatively, it's the nuances of what happens on the ground that, that provides us with um, the, 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 the greatest opportunity for, for creative solutions. So if we go back to um, Darwin's finches, right? So it's, yes, it's a, it's a finch, but the different size of beaks indicated what it was most likely faced with in the specific constraints. So a big fat beak for cracking nuts or a long skinny beak for skewering insects. So it's the, actual, it's the differences of the shapes of the beaks that give us the creative in, not just the fact yeah. that we recognize that it's a finch. Uh, in the in the book we explore, and this is a this is a piece that, and I remember we I was so excited when we were able to get Michael Paulin, um, the biomimic architect, into Nudstock. I think in about twenty eighteen, because came across the um came across the, the the field of biomimicry that for me was like the penny drop moment for the for the book. So for those who have not heard of biomimicry, it's essentially sort of borrowing from natural solutions to solve distinctively human problems. And one great example of biomimicry is the development of the, the Shinkansen 500 bullet train that was inspired actually by the owl and the, the, the Delhi penguin and the, and the kingfisher. Um, and, it's, and it's the specific feathers of the owl <laughs> that enable it to, to aid the development of the train. So it's not just any old bird or any old wing or any old beak. It's about the differences of these adaptations in the wild that you can borrow from. And that's where no, I think... So- what was fascinating about that was I always assumed it was something to do with actually reducing air resistance. Yeah. But the main point of that beak on the train is to stop it making a hell of a noise <coughs> when it goes into or exits a tunnel. A tunnel. <coughs> so locals were presumably being driven insane because every time one of these things would go into a tunnel at 180 miles an hour, create a big sonic it would produce this massive great whoomp noise yeah so all of the challenge actually in the shinkansen was noise related rather than speed related i think they had trains that could go fast enough um but the two parts one element of the the pantograph the part of the train that connects it to the wires that was creating this sort of whooshing noise with lots of turbulence so they 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 added micro serrations to that to cut up the turbulences into to sort of micro vortexes and that was inspired by the owl and as you say the kingfisher was I mean, it's a beautiful example of sort of nature coming together because tunnels is an evolutionary constraint, is an environmental constraint. Just like the drag of gravity or the friction of water, you're in having a tunnel along a rail that we need to survive is, is, a, is a lovely evolutionary, sorry, environmental constraint on the, on the rail. 
And, and as you say, it's it sort of helped the, the, the kingfishers evolve perfectly to go from the air into water to skewer its prey. Why don't we try something of a similar shape? And what the team did, and this is what's, again, also sort of lovely and parallel to some of the work we do, um, that the team didn't just go, okay, great, agreed, let's shake on it, let's whack a beak on the train. <laughs> they fired a series of different shaped bullets into a, into a chamber to, to assess the resistance, and they found after, after running sort of in-context experiments that the shape of the kingfisher's beak was sort of near perfect for addressing their needs. So it doesn't, and this is, is, is sort of important for us that just because Powerade might communicate electrolytes this specific way, it doesn't mean it's going to work perfectly for Castro or Magnatech, but we should trial it within a context, and that could be the breakthrough that we that we need. It certainly helps us to go outside of our existing frame of reference, um, and that's what's that's what's so valuable here, that how nature can help us to break our frame of reference, and in biomimicry. It's like borrowing from the ears of a hair to produce an air cooling system. But in our world, it's finding these psychological solutions. There's something really weird, isn't there, about the fact that there are certain things which are obvious in one domain, okay, but are completely non-obvious in another. So one of the things that fascinated me about this was this extraordinary thing where um, I, I was arguing that you could get, you could increase train capacity on the West Coast network by simply allowing people who'd booked a ticket on a later train to board an earlier train if they turned up early, right? And I can see when I explained this, a lot of people were kind of going, what's he talking about? Why would this increase capacity? Now, if you think about the evacuation of the US Embassy compound in Saigon, right, with helicopters, it's absolutely obvious that when a helicopter turns up, you fill it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, completely obvious. If you want to make the most use of available helicopters, you don't say, well, I'm afraid this helicopter is going to leave half empty, um, uh, Mr. Nagayan, because uh, uh, unfortunately you're booked on the 245 departure. <laughs> you fill the helicopter, right? And if you had a load of cars taking people from a wedding to a wedding reception, and you had a yeah. queue of people from the cars, you'd make sure every car left with five people in it. Okay? Completely obvious. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No one no one has to wrestle with that. But yeah. then when you turn it into a train, that same different. thing isn't obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I always remember this saying um, that, um, you know, those lifts we have in Sea Container's house where instead of actually just pressing up and getting in the lift and then pressing the button you want, you tell it, you tell it which floor you want and it directs you to the fastest lift, right? Yes. And a lot of people couldn't get their head around that, Okay. But I said, look, if you flip it and imagine the lifts are horizontal, right? If if you went to Paddington Station and you wanted to get to Swansea, you wouldn't board the first train going west, would you? Because yeah, you'd end yeah, up on a stopping yeah. train to Reading and then you'd arrive in Swansea about four hours later, right? You go, what's the fastest train to Swansea? Okay, different question. Yes. Not what's the first train leaving that's going left? Yes, yes. And so, but the strange thing is that everybody, under, you don't get anybody turning up at a train and doing that for a, a railway station. But when you make it vertical and it's an elevator, they go, I don't understand the point of these weird elevators. We've been trying to figure out this perceptual hack for years. All we need to do instead of having a lift A, B, C or D, we just need to call it platform A. And maybe yeah, if you done that, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah fast, fastest departure to the thirteenth floor, yeah. platform C. Platform C. You're in that and you just go, oh, I get this. That makes perfect sense. And that's we, what, we all, uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. We all, we all, yeah. we all then go, what a brilliant lift system. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and I think that's where because it's about reframing the nature of the problem. And if yeah. we can see, as you say, if you can reframe it rather than for, for the trains to the west as a as a commercial objective, it's no, this is a capacity problem. How else do we? address capacity or yield management in in other what can we learn from coal mining what can we learn from from when you've got sort of finite resources and trips to the moon how much every time they go to the space station how are they making the decisions as to what goes on board i mean this, well, this, this is, is where it's, yeah. in, in, the, in the new book uh, it's how to think differently which a new way to think by roger martin he makes the point that consultancies started as kind of strategy consultancies and they were generalists. They worked across all kinds of industries. And as the consulting business got bigger and bigger, so in fact, there are more management consultants in the UK than there are in China, okay, mm, mm, mm. despite the fact that we have, uh, you know, 20th of the pop- 25th of the population, okay. 
He said, as consulting got bigger and bigger, they all became industry specific. So what they did is they lifted shit from other competitors in the same industry and basically replicated it, which is actually bad news overall, because the last thing you want to be is very similar to your competitors. Okay. Instead of actually doing that business where they were cross-disciplinary in their thinking. And I think I think it's actually a major problem. We need to bring back this because uh, Triz features in your book quite a bit, which is this Russian. Uh, I, I can never remember what it stands for in Russian, this but it's a technique problem solving. I can't, theory I can't of inventing yeah, exactly. I can't, I can't remember the Russian itself, but, but absolutely, and and thinking cross category and 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 one way I think and we again a good psychologist does this naturally. I mean, we'll have psychologists that are experts in in in. in marital issues in in specific societies but but fundamentally the role of a good psychologist isn't necessarily to come with all the answers right um because it's because your your experience your realities is different to someone else's it's to come with the right questions to let category experts take us further and that's where i think that that, uh, something i've been passionate about for, for a long time is about the questions that we ask people who are closer to the to the issue we're fortunate to work with people like Facebook and Palo Alto all the way through to Westminster Council on local rubbish disposal. We, we can't possibly know the ins and outs of a Facebook platform or the ins and outs of waste management in Westminster as good as the clients that we're speaking to. Well, I, mean, I hate and, to say this, but I, I've never understood the point of a PhD in behavioural science because my argument is, look, I, I don't want someone who spent five years studying loss aversion, right? I'd much rather someone turned up having spent a year effectively yes. covering the waterfront. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, 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 by the way, if there are any PhDs out there listening, I'm not saying, no, we don't want to hire you, you know, go away. But, I, you know, it just doesn't seem to be the better use from yeah. the point of view of application. Yeah. It doesn't seem a very good use of, of behavioral science compared to turning up with a slightly messy but nonetheless complete toolkit yeah. Yeah. and fiddling around with spanners and wrenches. I think it's all about trying to avoid the constraints that we might come Come with. I mean, and, and naturally, yeah. we'll, we'll all have bias. We'll all have the, the most frequent tools or, or questions or ways of looking at because we naturally do. But if we're able to help someone in a specific industry or category to escape that, um, then then one of the best ways, I think, is, is to ask them a slightly different question that they would have been asked before, to give them permission to ask themselves a slightly different question that they've, they've been asked before. And well, I you, think... I think there's this massive self-aggrandizement problem, which is that your status is enhanced by seeing things from the top, okay? And it's a bit like that distinction, which is, you know, the in many ways, the org chart doesn't serve the interest of employees at all or the organization. Mm-hmm. It serves the comprehension of a manager who likes to see a neat pyramid, Okay despite the fact that no business really works like that, and the idea that the seven people at level three are all interchangeable is a complete nonsense. It makes it look neat. And so we have this vanity thing where everybody wants to look at things from the top. And actually, one, you miss the vital significance of the seemingly trivial. But secondly, you end up effectively seeing things in the same way as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot. There's a lovely story about this, which is John Hegarty. Um, I think when BBH were pitching for Audi, must have been back in the early '90s, I would guess. And they're on the factory tour of Audi, and Hegarty kind of wanders off in a bit of a kind of, you know, bit of a brown study. And they go, John, 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 we're supposed to be at the meeting. We're, we're, we're meeting in the boardroom in uh, five minutes' time. Da 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 da. You know, what are you doing? Why are you over here? And John Hegarty's staring at this irrelevant sort of sign in some corner of the Audi factory and simply turns around and says, what does Vorsprung Dirk Technik yeah. mean? Okay. Now, the point is you don't actually know the um, uh, at what level or scale the solution is going to emerge. Yes. Okay. And yet everybody, I think, for reasons of self-aggrandizement and general status boost, has this massive preference for the top down, Mm-mm. because it makes you look important, mm. you know. And if you think about it, the shareholder value movement has made that worse. Because what? Why is all data collected within an organisation? It's so that the people at the very top can then report to stockholders. And so the really interesting information about customers gets aggregated. What makes your customers different is lost in this act of mass aggregation. 
because the shareholders don't care about customers. They just care about, you know, this year versus last year. And so the the very act of data collection suffers from this whole uh, vanity bias, I think. It goes back to that, that, that assumption that big problems need big solutions, and the only people yeah. capable of big solutions are big big thinkers. And if you're a big if you if you're a big thinker, you've made it to the top. But actually, we know that in, in the, the, that small solutions make a huge difference, and, and it and it and it can come from anywhere. And, and, it, and it can even by the way, it doesn't even have to come from a person; it can come from an accident. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But spotting it, but spotting mm. it, know what we've done. Mm. To understand how we replicate it, I think that's that's the element there. Yeah, Viagra, that. Viagra being the most famous part of that. I, I was giving a talk to some school kids today and realised that probably Viagra wasn't the most uh, uh, schoolboy appropriate uh, um, uh, case study in science, but it was uh, it was a Kent school and Viagra. I think was discovered. I think it was the um, people at um, Sandwich Discovery Park, funnily enough. And it was simply that after the trial was over, you know, they'd had loads and loads of medical trials of heart medication. And they said, and uh, uh, if you can just hand back the uh, drugs you have left over. And everybody went, no, every single previous trial, everyone went, yeah, here they are. Yeah, fine, whatever. And suddenly they were faced with these people going, no, I don't want to hand them over. And someone had the nose to ask, what the hell is going on here? But even even yeah. then, you can learn from that as to the distinctiveness of the blue pill, the the colloquial nature of describing it. You I mean calling it like the little blue pill? You know, it removes the sting of medication. So there's so much around, around that that we can we can borrow from and, and put into put into other other contexts. I know we're being where we I, I could talk about this for for, for ages with you, Rory. I think we're being on the, on this on the sideline, being asked to 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 wrap, to wrap up our conversation a bit. Um, but it's wonderful to be able to talk about this with you. But I think, well, I think the whole point about evolutionary ideas is that uh, there's this idea of, you know, effectively, of, you know, and as you said, there are these Cambrian explosions like the yes. electric car or the automobile, um, and you get you get these very weird perspectives, uh, 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 you know, and actually um, trying to actually look at things at a variety of different scales and having the humility to look at the trivial. You know that the you know the, the, my favourite trivial thing the foil lid on the top of a San Pellegrino can you know that kind of gratuitous thing. There's actually more there. There's much yeah. more there than yes. in generalised data about the soft drinks industry, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's there's more you can infer from that. Yes, and it just it, it strikes me as just so interesting because um, this this weird idea I think that you have to. Uh, I, suppose, I suppose what it is, I suppose if you look at it, the evolution has solved extraordinarily complicated problems by essentially, uh, you know, variation and selection deployed over a very long time. And, um, and of course, it's worth noting that there's a, that, that, um, there's a loss of efficiency in variation, of course, that, if it, that nature is not a short-term Taylorist efficiency maximizer. Yes. Um, uh, that um, uh, you know, effectively, you know, the, I mean, the most efficient form of genetic replication, right? Very simple, uh, is um, parthenogenesis. It's simple, you know. You you know, you simply split. And the interesting question is, you know, what, why is it so uncommon that you don't have sexual reproduction uh, in advanced animals? And of course, the reason is that without the recombination, you replicate you replicate your genes very very efficiently, right to the point where you all die. Because you're insufficiently diversified. Exactly, putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, um, and I think, and I think, with all of this, instead of for in our world, sometimes it can be rather than millions of years of biological evolution. It's it's thousands of problem solvers and a and a and a and a wide selection of environmental constraints by which many of us are seeking to solve exactly the same problems. And if we can give ourselves permission to see that the top of a San Pellegrino is a lovely piece of costly signalling that we can then deploy in a, in, a, in another context when we're looking to charge a premium for what could be what could be argued as a comparable sort of product, then we can start to think differently about it. We can extract its value and redeploy it elsewhere. And that's where I think things become exciting. It helps us to reframe the problem that we're faced with. It helps us to, in your, in your words, Rory, sort of expand the solution set that we otherwise would because we'd naturally converge on the, the category norms. But if we can see the problem as not a, a soft drink challenge, it's a it's a it's a price 
equation. How can we justify charging three times the competitor? Well, actually putting a little bit of discretionary value in it to make it feel like it's a premium offer is the solution. So when we're faced next time with a premium gas bill, what's the what's the, the white glove service, the concierge, the, the, the notice that we get um, that, that, that helps us to do that? And that's what's exciting. That's what's to be written um, when, we, when, we, when we start to see the world slightly differently with this way. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Also, also, of course, it's the um, uh, the other the other bias you get when you solve things for the top, when you solve things for average, is that the other thing that goes out of the uh, out of the window is the idea that people might choose because it gives you the delusional idea that what's optimal for the average is overall optimal for the collective. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that mistake that mistake gets very widely replicated. I mean, again, and that's where again, again the extremes of environmental conditions. That's what's so interesting about borrowing from from the evolved is that it tends to be the most extreme conditions that that forges the greatest the, the most evident differences. So we can see yeah. we can, we, because we've got animals living in the Arctic and then the Sahara Desert, we can, we can see these vast differences and how they, how, they, how they work. So, so again, looking at the extremes, it's another radio school of thought. Oftentimes it's why we, we mentioned before looking at keeping customers interested in a, in a software program. Let's look at the extreme of maintaining a sense of arousal in a hot state to drive a transaction. Well, who does this better than Pornhub? So sometimes it gives us permission to go to places that you otherwise wouldn't look to to, to where the solution is, and, and your your other example is, of course, uh, is it Red Dead Redemption, which is where the horses' balls shrink. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, how do you when they, when they, when they go into snow? The how, horses do signal, not- how do you have signal that the, the, the game is is crafted to perfection? Well, people found that the, the horses' yeah. balls shrunk in the cold and expanded in the warmth. I mean, if you can if you can have a design team that has that focus, sort of attention to detail, you know that the gunplay is going to be pretty damn pretty well good. thought out. It's, it's pretty yeah. good. Exactly. So it's a, it's yeah. been a it's been a lot of fun writing it. It's been a lot of fun discussing it with you over over many years, and I can't thank you enough for 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 for, for your support and inspiration in in that, that touches every every page of this. And it's wonderful to to talk about it with you today. It's a joy. No, and ultimately, of course, there's this mythology, I suppose, which is that competition takes place at head office, whereas competition, of course, takes place in the marketplace. Yes. And what we're talking about seems incredibly nonsensical if you're one of those people who's obsessed with the idea that you compete at head office with your with yeah. other competing head offices. But actually, in truth, in the marketplace, what actually determines success is much, much messier and in many cases much more trivial than people at the top like to believe. The, the, the marketplace or just, I mean, we can learn from a pile of cigarettes. If we understand what a pile yeah. of cigarettes signals to others, then we can we can learn from that in a, in a, in a website. So that's the, that's, and it becomes a bit of an affliction. Once you're able to see the world through a slightly different lens, we find these <laughs> answers are all around us. And so you never stop. I mean, there's it's not been a family holiday that I've taken in, in the last 10 years that have not been sort of, stop the car, I've got to take a photo of that sign. Or I mean, and, that, and that's, what, that's what happens once you sort of, once you have a bit of an idea of what's, what's evolving around us. Um, I, had a, I had a wonderful case of, uh, of, in a sense, my own advice being used back on me, which was <laughs> I, went to the, I went to the little local station, of course, because of lockdown. I've hardly been there, okay? And I arrived, I was travelling into London fairly late, and the little coffee shop was just closing up, and the guy was yes. pleased to see me, and I was pleased to see him. But he was actually locking the coffee shop. And I said, oh, you're closed, do you? And he said, well, since it's you. And he remembered what I'd wanted from two years ago and made yeah. me the flat yeah. white. Yeah. Okay, now <laughs> that gesture—that uh, gesture—that gesture's cost me a hundred quid yeah. because it means <laughs> I'm basically obliged to buy a coffee from that guy yeah. every time I show up yeah. for the next hundred occasions. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where it, is, it isn't what it is; it's what it means. Yes. Yeah. And of right. course, this 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 all comes down to epistemology, which is that we've evolved a way of perceiving the world, which is not remotely objective. You know. And, and uh, you know, and likewise, if they, you know, actually, I wouldn't have grudged the guy if he said, I'm terribly sorry, I'm closed. But the fact that he actually kind of cranked up the gadget for me was yeah. just an act to me of extraordinary generosity and mutual recognition. And if we go back which, to... If we go back to Amazon Prime, if, if it's about commitment, it's this is a this is a, sort of a, instead of being a, a personal sunk cost, this is a, a, a signal 
Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a utility sacrifice. I mean, it's got to cost them more time, more, more money to, to get this going, but, but they'll do it for, for you. And this is where I think, and um, discussed about it at length in the book, is sort of how this codification, this language really helps us to sort of say, it's a that. <laughs> Once we can yeah. say, it's a great example of a that, then next time we're faced with the challenge of loyalty, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a loyalty play, then we can, re- again, re- redeploy it elsewhere. It's it, it's potentially it, it's potentially very very liberating as you say because um, I, I don't I don't quite know why these blind spots exist but there seems to be a kind of rule that when you're given a problem you have to solve it at the scale at which it is defined and in the language in which it's defined yes. so an engineering problem defined as an engineering problem has to be solved through engineering or, or a big engineering problem needs a big engineering it solution. needs a huge budget yeah yeah it, 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 it needs a huge budget yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. no and, really and really interesting where, and that's what we seek to what we seek to 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 uncouple in this that actually the new problems don't need new solutions necessarily um, there's no, a vast so someone's, of, that's the great Triz thing. Someone's already solved someone's it. Someone's already solved they've it. Just, they've just solved it in a different domain and you've never made the connection. I, I think and, that's and, spot on. And that's it. And that's where it becomes exciting <laughs> as problem yeah. solvers. It's where it comes, it comes liberating insofar as sort of in, innovation to sort of see how we can go b- beyond our category. Um, and it's a, it's a space that we can continue to learn from and, and, and build from. So it's, it's, um, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's a kind of approach, it's a methodology, but it's there's no actual process to it. In that, I mean, you know, you set out to do it, but ultimately, it's a creative process. It's not a reductionist process. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Well, that has been brilliant. We're, we're, we're getting notes. We're, we're definitely at a time from the team behind the scenes here. It's um, a huge thanks for for, for your, your time talking about the book. Um, really thrilled um, that it's that it's now sort of into 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 publish. It's called Evolutionary Ideas. Do hope um, that- I'm going to give it. Anyway, I'm going to just in case this appears on screen. I'm <laughs> going to hold it up to my camera. We, we can see it. Um, but it's, as I said, it's been wonderful to work with 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 uh, with you in discussing many of the concepts over, over over many years, and I'm thrilled to talk about it today. Absolute joy! It's a fantastic book. Absolutely brilliant. All the best. Thank you. Hello again, Nigerians. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I love Sam's idea that new problems do not need new solutions, because powerful ideas have already been solved in biology, technology and psychology. So instead of trying to revolutionize each time, we can benefit by embracing a borrowing and adoption mindset. What would be your reflection, David? I really loved the second point around the myth that big problems need big solutions. And we see this ourselves in the world of applied behavioral science. Sometimes the smallest things, like changing the weight of an envelope, have the greatest impact in changing behaviour. So that's it for today. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nudge.com. Until next time, goodbye nudges.